She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode 13, Force Mature. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, February 7th, 1997 at 9 p.m. Yes, and of note, there are apparently lots of sevens in this episode. So if you're looking for a drinking game today, we gotcha. I mean, just the <laughs> title, Majeure, has seven letters. Okay. If you take the episode number 13 and then the number of letters in the title, you get 13 and you get 12. One and three is four. One and two is three. Four and three is seven. <gasps> and then the date is February 7th, 1997. And Friday is the fifth day. February is the second month. Add those together. You get seven. <gasps> so oh my lots goodness. of sevens. Yeah, lots of sevens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we haven't even started the episode yet, so you guys mm. are already buzzed. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's a Monday, so it's a good day for a drinking game. It's always a good day <laughs> for a drinking game. <laughs> In the episode, do you like clones, planetary alignments, doomsday prophecies, mm-hmm. returning guest stars? If you do. Well, then we've got a Syzygy for you and Frank Black, too. Syzygy? Syzygy! Syzygy! Wow. Okay. Yeah, so hopefully this will be a really fun episode where Frank goes on a road trip and is inexplicably cranky with (laughs) Watts, and Watts is inexplicably cranky back. And there's a bunch of weird stuff happening. And they go to. Oh, he could go on a road trip with Bletcher. Or with his wife, even. I mean. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have Jordan in the back being like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just. Anyway, you can find that on our AO3 account. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find Syzygy in our X-Files account because that's actually an X-Files episode. That is real. So you can actually listen to us (laughs) talk about Syzygy. Uh, Millennium fan fiction that I have written is not. (laughs) At least not yet. Like, we have time to do fan fiction. <laughs> I know, right? I definitely do not. My goodness. I have all so these, much going I on. I come up with all these ideas. These these podcasts are a mine, the mother load of, yeah, fanfic, and yet I have no time to do any of them. So. No. Too busy writing podcast scripts and editing <laughs> episodes. <laughs> Force Majeure was written by Chip Johannesson and was directed by Winridge Colby. This is the second of four season one episodes Johannesson will write or co-write. He'll have 13 in total, four in season one, three in season two. Which adds up to seven. (gasps) Oh, and uh, six in season three. Hmm. He's also either a producer, co-producer, consulting producer, or executive producer on all 67 episodes. (gasps) 67? And as we mentioned in his previous episode, episode seven, Blood Relatives. <gasps> episode seven? <laughs> Man, there really are. I hope no one's really playing a drinking game. You're going to have some problems if you're trying to do that. He will write one episode of The X-Files in season seven. <gasps> the Return of Donnie Faster, 
which I believe we mistakenly said he'd co-write. I think he actually just writes it. He probably had a lot of input from Chris yeah, Carter. Yeah, I was I was thinking he co-wrote it with Chris Carter because Chris Carter and all that and them, you know. And so I was I messed it up and thought he co-wrote it with Chris Carter. But he just straight up wrote it. So Okay. As much as any one person ever writes a TV episode, right? It's usually at least on some level there's some other input coming in. Yes, assume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least ideally, there is some other input coming in from somewhere. He's also written and produced for Beverly Hills, 90210, Dark Angel, Empire, Dexter, 24, and Homeland. This is also the second of four episodes that Colby will direct. His previous was episode six, Kingdom Come. So we see the shadows of a rhythmic mechanism move across the wall and hear what sounds like a respirator. And then we see a white-haired man in a slightly fogged mirror. And a woman's voice says, Papa, it's begun. And then it's Washington Polytechnic University Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. It's night, and a sudden rainstorm has students running for shelter, among them Mora, a teaching assistant. As they watch the rain, big old giant chunks of ice start falling to the ground. And then suddenly all the light globes near the building start exploding. Boom, boom, boom. And Mora lights a cigarette, probably a nervous reaction. And then the ice stops, but the rain is still coming down. And they see a young woman slowly walking towards them. And Mora is like, Lauren. And Lauren has no coat, but does not seem bothered by the rain. And when Lauren gets near them, she kind of gestures like for a cigarette. And so Mora hands a cigarette to her. And then Lauren erupts in flame. And her body burns violently as the others watch horrified. And we see through the flames that Lauren's fingers are curled together in what looks like some sort of like cradling gesture. And then she just burns and burns and burns. And then Mm -hmm. it's the main titles. God, how terrible would you feel if you were the person who gave her that cigarette? Like, I know it's not her fault in any way, but like, I would still feel awful for the rest of my life and regret that decision, even though what else are you going to do? You know, I'd have another one. I'm not getting that cigarette back. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I don't, that that's not why i would feel terrible about it but yeah hey, okay. cigarettes are expensive i mean they were expensive in 1997 i mean sadly i was just thinking about this because i was really wanting a cigarette the other day for some reason mm. and i got thinking about it i'm like man like packs are almost what you could get a carton for back when i smoked yeah <laughs> yeah no they are especially because they've like put all those taxes on top of yeah them well now, i mean that's so. the majority of it yeah yeah uh, but yeah whew, man I don't smoke, yeah. but occasionally I do see them in the store, and I'm like, "Oof, that is a yeah, pricey habit." So. I don't drink. I don't do anything fun. I'm boring. Don't I watch drink, the X Files. What do you do? <laughs> you don't drink. Don't smoke. Anyway, <laughs> I podcast. <laughs> <laughs> As we just discussed, that takes up most of my time, so it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Flames are all in your apartment. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> From Lauren, because she's burning alive in your apartment. Oh, anyway. God, so horrible. <laughs> anyway. So then we get our epigraph, and this is, you remember a single deluge only, but there were many previous ones. And it is by Plato. 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 And so this quote appears in section one of Plato's Timaeus, and is spoken by Hermocrates in what is typically the third paragraph of Timaeus in English translations, and in which he also begins a discussion of Atlantis. Oh, yeah, that continues into the next dialogue, which is Critias. 
However, unlike the previous episode where a quote from Faust by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was used and credited to Faust, the character who speaks it, this epigraph is credited to Plato rather than to Hermocrates, the character who speaks it. So it would seem, at least here, attribution is more about name recognition than consistency, I think. So mm -hmm. you know, that would make sense. Yeah, if you put Hermocrates, people would be like, who the fuck is that? Is it like yeah. Socrates' brother? I don't know. So, yeah. Actually, and Hermocrates was supposed to get his own dialogue. The dialogues, Timaeus, Critias, and Hermocrates are supposed to be a trilogy. But either he never wrote it or it's lost. And actually, the end of Critias is also, we don't have it. So, hmm. yeah. Well, we got to fire up that time machine and go find it. <laughs> Your list is getting really long. <laughs> so long. <laughs> I better get working on that so I can get started. So we see television footage of flooding and we learn there's been 25 inches of rain in 72 hours and seven confirmed deaths. Seven? Yeah. <laughs> I already forgot that was a thing. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to keep doing that because it's probably going to get annoying, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> there's also a mounting number of missing persons. Then we see Frank and Jordan at home in the kitchen and the phone rings and Frank answers. It's Catherine. She tells him she's going to be late. She's working with the parents of a graduate student who self-immolated. They refuse to accept that she killed herself. But Catherine says she really appreciates the guy they sent down to help. Dennis something. She doesn't remember his last name, but she thinks he's someone who works with Frank. Frank has no idea who she's talking about, but then says he probably just hasn't met him yet. When they get off the phone, Catherine finds that Dennis is gone, so she can't Ask him his last name. Maybe he was a ghost. <gasps> Ooh. Frank has Jordan get ready for bed. And then on TV, the news is playing what must be security footage of the student, Lauren, burning. Later, we see Frank watching the footage again on his computer in the basement. Catherine comes in. She says the Padilla family thinks someone made Lauren kill herself. She took it as a defense mechanism. But Dennis seemed to think it was something... And it was almost like he encouraged them to believe it. She mentions that Lauren was their only child and then says she's going to go check on Jordan. Their only child. Yeah, because something horrible happened to a kid. And she's like, I got to go hug mine. That's all. Yeah. So Frank logs into the Millennium Group on his computer and establishes a voice connection with Peter Watts. He asks Peter if they're working on the case. And Peter says no. And he's like, should we? And Frank thinks so, but he doesn't mention quote-unquote dennis the ghost oh yeah you think he would like is it, did you, yeah did you a guy named dennis down that's kind of i thought that was kind of weird that he didn't mention it yeah because that would have been my only question really like oh are we working on this yeah my you, wife i figured said... that's why he's calling him right hey peter <laughs> right. you know yeah Catherine mentioned there was a guy dennis she thought he worked with us so yeah just check it on that but yeah yeah that would have been my yeah the whole reason i called honestly so <laughs> So then we're at Washington Polytechnic campus and it's 8.44 a.m. And Frank is interviewing Maura. She and Lauren shared an office, which is extremely nice for a pair of teaching assistants, honestly. And mm -hmm. Maura is smoking in there, even though she's not supposed to. So she's like, hey, close the door. I'm not supposed to be smoking in here. So Maura says that Lauren was mutant smart, unlike her parents. Lauren had just been offered a faculty position at Oxford. And apparently her parents, like, didn't even know where Oxford was, the kind of discussion we get. As Frank asks more questions, she starts to get kind of angry. She tells him that the same questions the other guy they sent asked, Dennis Hoffman. And she only agreed to meet with Frank because Dennis said he would be able to provide some answers, not just ask the same questions. 
Frank is kind of confused, and he looks at a brass model of the planets, and more is like, he said you'd be interested in that. So, <laughs> oh, whoever this Dennis guy is, he knows about Frank. Yeah, he does. Fascinating. And Moore is played by Sarah Strange, one cool name. And her first acting credit seems to have been in a music video for Johnny Hates Jazz's Shattered Dreams in 1988. She was the English voice for Ranma Satume, male version, in Ranma Half, and also played Kimberly in Dwayne Barry, season two, episode five of The X Files. She's the one who was actually nice to Dwayne Barry. <laughs> and she's been in a lot of stuff since, although nothing I've really seen, including uh, Snowpiercer most recently. So, Yeah, I also recognized her, and I thought she was, you know, she's a pretty lady. Mm, uh, yeah, she's, she's good looking. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was like, where do I know her from? Um, she was also in five episodes of The Newsroom as Susan Murdoch, which I think is largely where I recognize her from other than Dwayne Barry. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that she's been in, like, multiple episodes of or stuff like that. But I didn't want to just list everything, especially because I had Oh, totally. Her, so, yeah. I just think the newsroom, I definitely watched. And I, I think I kind of remember her in that. So I think that's probably the one. She was also, like, in an episode of Stargate, just stuff like that. But, yeah. Yeah, also, I was getting, I think it's because you cannot avoid ads for it right now if you're ever on the internet. But in the first scene, she has pigtails, and I was getting some little Wednesday Adams vibes, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. could see that. So outside, a little vigil has formed on the spot where Lauren burned alive, basically. And Frank sees that the globe lights are being replaced by facilities on campus. And he sees they align all in a row, which, I mean, they would. They're along a path, so we would probably align in a row. But then he gets flashes of planets in the brass model, and he looks down, and he sees that the spot where Lauren emulated is exactly where one of those lamps would exist if it had continued into the middle of the walkway. <gasps> Dennis Hoffman approaches and says he's glad they're teamed up on this. He would have come to Frank sooner, but he wanted Frank to see everything for himself first. The girl, the alignment. He says on May 5th, 2000, the seven inner planets <gasps> will align for the first time since the Great Flood. Uranus at the meridian of its epicenter. He says Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) Does he? Yeah. He probably does. Earth will be the focus of the biggest gravitational tug of war in 6,000 years. Catastrophic Earth changes on alignment day preceded by abnormal weather patterns now as stressors build. Then he gives examples. A list of hurricanes, the advancement of the Sahara Desert, a list of earthquakes, and now this. And Frank's like, the hailstorm? Dennis says that she knew, but is dubious that such knowledge would cause her to kill herself three years before the event. Someone else is involved behind the scenes. (gasps) And now that I think about it, I didn't put this in the notes, but I think when he's giving his examples, because he's like, example, and then gives a bunch of hurricanes. I like, know. I'm, example. Honestly, I freaking <laughs> love it. I love it. I think like, it's such example, a good delivery. Get, but I think, <laughs> now that I think about it, I think he might list seven hurricanes. I think the Sahara Desert fact that he gives involves seven, and I think he lists seven earthquakes, too. I might be making some of this up, but I think he does. I would not be surprised. Okay. I might be exaggerating, but that's probably what I would do. So Frank says Dennis has been telling people that they're working together and they've never met. Dennis is like, ask Peter Watts. He'll clear it up. Which, of course, Mm. like, 
Frank already kind of asked him. Didn't mention. Well, he didn't name, though. But... He didn't ask that. He wasn't specific. If you want a specific answer, you have to ask a specific question. So Hoffman is played by Brad Dorif, and depending on your viewing habits, he may be best known as Billy Bibbit from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. Charles Lee Ray, a.k.a. Chucky, in every instance of the Child's Play franchise from 1988 through 2022. The only two exceptions that I'm aware of is the 2019 movie and a video game, I think, where Mark Campbell did the voice of the character. X-Files, season one, episode 13, Beyond the Sea, in which he played convicted serial killer and possible psychic Lucas Lee Boggs, or as Doc Cochran in Deadwood. He's also been in a ton of other stuff, including Star Trek Voyager, The Lord of the Ring Two Towers, where he played Wormtongue, Fringe, Psych, Criminal Minds, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> he was also, going back to our music video action, he was also in the 1984 music video Stranger in Town by Toto. Which, very heavy emphasis on the strange and stranger, it involves him running from the police after a possible murder and includes the body outline getting up and dancing and then becoming a ghost of the murdered person and talks to the police and tells them what happened. And then, while on the run, the killer, Brad Dorif, he is found in a barn by a group of kids who take care of him and then bring him a Bible and he reads it to them, apparently redeeming himself, only to be captured by the police and maybe become like a sort of Christ figure in front of the kids as the police take him away. I'm not really sure. The 80s were fucking bonkers, man. But anyway, <laughs> he has really good hair in that video, though. It's big old golden <laughs> locks. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I was not familiar with that song. Um, it's not a great song, honestly. But the video is extremely interesting. It's all in black and white. Nothing, so. Huh. Yeah. And it's kind of weird because the murder seems to be, like, American detectives doing the stuff. But then later he's running, like, from British Bobbies. Like with a little cap and everything. Uh-huh. And then the kids, they could be anything. They're all in a barn and they're like, he's reading the Bible to them. They're like giving him water and taking care of him and stuff. It's very strange. Very, very strange. So, yeah. So that night, Frank and Peter meet. Peter tells Frank it took some talking, but Dennis is always eager to talk. And he's pretty sure he got him to agree to leave Frank and Catherine alone. He tells Frank that Dennis Hoffman first approached the group years earlier during a Zodiac cult investigation. Once he found out about them, it took a year to get him to leave them alone. He believes Hoffman is somewhat odd, but harmless. Aside from Dennis, Peter did uncover evidence proving that Lauren is not her parents' biological offspring, yet there are no papers documenting her adoption or even her birth. However, Dennis is correct that someone was working behind the scenes, though not necessarily involved with her death. She has scholarships, appointments, an endless list of special programs starting at a very early age. Her parents weren't involved, but there's been a pattern of positive interference in her life from the outside. Mmm, a secret benefactor. Yeah. And then we see a woman who is not named in the episode, but is named Myra in the credits. And she enters a room that inside is an iron lung. And then she bends down, and we see the white-haired man that we saw earlier reflected in the mirror. So he's in the iron lung. This explains all the movement and the breathing and all that kind of stuff. And the mirror is attached to the iron lung so he can have, like, a view of the room besides just, like, having to stare at the ceiling all the time. And the periodic fog on the mirror is from his mechanically controlled breathing. Anyway, she tells him, it's Carlin. She won't be coming. And he looks very concerned. Mm. So, 
And he is called Iron Lung Man in the credit, so that's what we're going to call him. And he is played by Morgan Woodward. He also played Old Man Coakley in Aubrey, Season 2, Episode 12 of The X-Files, which also featured Terry O'Quinn, a.k.a. Peter Watts, as Lieutenant Brian Tillman. Yay! So, yeah. He had a career spanning at least as far back as 1956, according to IMDb. But this appears to have been his final acting role, even though he did not pass away until 2019 at the age of 93. So huh. I guess he just decided to retire. This was his last yeah. one. It was like, you know what? Millennium nailed it. Done. So. <laughs> and then a camera pans across the room and we see one of those brass models of the planets again. And there are wards and plaques. And we see a young woman sitting at a desk breathing somewhat heavily, but kind of controlled. Like she's, you know, that kind of like, mm-hmm. like maybe you're in pain or something. I don't know. And then she sets a bloody razor blade down on some papers. Well, that's probably explains the breathing. And her mother is knocking on the bedroom door asking if she's okay. And from the, her mother, we hear her name is Carlin. And she looks exactly like Lauren, but mm-hmm. with shorter hair. And also, Myra had said Carlin isn't coming. <gasps> really? Yeah. So then she presses some tissue onto the inside of her thigh and blood bleeds through it in the shape of a circle with a line extending from it, like a magnifying glass kind of. So and then it's dark and Carlin steps over the railing of the walkway atop a dam and she curls her fingers together in a cradle like gesture and then steps off the edge and plummets into the spillways below. And it's commercial. So. Yep, that's why she's not coming. Cause, uh, yeah. Cause, yep. So then we see Cheryl Andrews performing an autopsy on Lauren's body. CCH Pounder! Woo! Yay! All indications point towards use of an accelerant, which would make sense with the cause of death being ruled as self-immolation. The hands, however, are curled similar to a mandala, a Buddhist prayer of offering. Cheryl also notes the striking blue color of Lauren's eyes and of a distinctive pattern on the iris. Frank finds a symbol carved into the flesh of her thigh. Peter says the mark is an astronomical symbol for conjunction or alignment, and it's the same mark that we saw Carlin cut into her thigh. Yeah, and we should mention that Lauren is extra barbecued. Yeah, well. Black and crusty. Yes. As they leave, Peter and Frank see Dennis standing outside. Peter tells him that they had an agreement. But Dennis is like, you found something in there, didn't you? Frank draws the symbol in the dirt on the trunk of Dennis's car. And Dennis says, May 5th, I knew it. 5-5-2000. So then Dennis goes into his spiel with Frank repeatedly interrupting, saying he's already told them all that. Frank gets into his Jeep and Dennis says, seven planets align. Seven people survived with Noah. Seven separate prophecies by Nostradamus predicting the apocalypse in May. This is the beginning. (laughs) This is the beginning of the thousand days. When the first trumpet sounds, there will come hail mixed with fire and blood. Revelations, verse seven. (gasps) Blood, Exodus, chapter seven. And the river was turned to blood. River of blood. There'll be more. And Frank drives away. Whoa. Okay, you got to refill because that was five drinks. You probably <laughs> need to. You might need a new bottle by now, honestly. So. Yeah. 
Please don't drink every time there's a seven. <laughs> we don't want anyone going into like liver failure over here. I mean, we didn't say you had to drink alcohol. You True. could just be hydrating, you know? We're helping. <laughs> At home, Frank does his own research. He enters 552000 into the database of the Palomar Electronic Observatory. And when the search is complete, the screen reads, Solar System, Friday, year 2000, May 5th at 1907 GMT. Extremely rare alignment. Splendid syzygy as illustrated by this artist's interpretation. And then we see an image that shows the seven planets all in alignment with the sun. And then in a book, Frank finds a woodcut titled The Plague of Hail. And then he flips some more pages and finds another one entitled The River of Blood. So it seems legit. He's got it all yeah. down. And then he types river plus blood in with the plus symbol, not like the word plus, in the search engine. And then he scrolls down for a link to the Riverside, Oregon Gazette. And the link shows the front page of a newspaper and the headlines are all Malhor River turns red. Scientists baffled. Pyroclastic surge. Dollar makes slow gain. <laughs> river water turns blood red. And then he scrolls down. And then there's another headline. It's all local girl missing. National merit scholar. Carlin Mather disappears. <gasps> oh. And then later, Frank is standing over a table, and a sheriff tells him they left her the way they found her. It wasn't pretty. And Frank unzips the body bag. And we're at Malhor General Hospital, Riverside, Oregon, 12, 11 p.m. Peter finds sediment in the bag. Andesol soil. Volcanic. And then he's like, they speculate volcanic ash from the Santorini turned the Nile River red in ancient Egypt. Ooh, river of blood, Frank says. And then Cheryl says it looks like she was underwater for three days. And the sheriff confirms she went missing three days ago. I think it wasn't mm. seven days ago. Yeah. Then Carlin's mother arrives, and the sheriff tries to keep her out and comfort her. And apparently, like, it's really small because the sheriff knows everybody by name and everything. So he's trying to, you know, comfort the mom and, you know, tell her, like, hey, you don't want to see her like this. Let her clean her up kind of stuff. And then Frank comes out, and she's like, you're the one who knew where we would find her. And then she looks kind of frightened. is like, he's one of them. And Frank's like, one of whom? The ones who brought Carlin to you? And Mrs. Mather starts crying, and she's like, I don't know. I never knew they've taken my perfect baby. So, Aww. yeah. And then inside, Cheryl notes that her eyes are the same blue and have the same defect in the iris as Lauren Padilla. And they also find the mark cut into her thigh. <gasps> oh. So then it's 3.27 p.m. Cheryl says there's definite family resemblance, and she expects to find something interesting in the pelvic cavity. Ooh. She knows evidence of repeated injections in the buttocks. Peter asks if someone was drugging her. Cheryl says based on the angle, it would appear she was injecting herself. Both bodies have very high levels of estrogen, but with Lauren, she just assumed it was a false reading caused by the extreme heat. Except, lo and behold, Carlin Mather, high school senior, and by all indication a virgin, is super ovulated. And then Frank has flashes of the planets and the brass model again, and he says there are seven eggs. And she says, yep, and they're even in a row. Isn't that neat? Yeah, we get to see them. Mm -hmm. it's kind of, ooh. Yeah, and there are seven mature egg follicles where there should be one. Ooh, seven. 
Cheryl says the girls must be sisters, and Frank says identical twins. Peter's like, they're not the same age, so that they can't be twins. Frank agrees. They're seven years apart. (gasps) Identical offspring. They're being readied for the cataclysm on May 5th in the year 2000. Like Noah preparing for the flood. Man, there's a lot of sevens in this episode. <laughs> so many. I didn't, you know, what's funny is that I didn't really clock it while I was watching it. But now I'm like, wow, how did I miss this? And then we see Myra bend down towards the Iron Lung Man. And she's like, they know about Lauren and Carlin. What should we do? And he tells her to call the others. She looks up. A young woman who looks just like Lauren and Carlin appears in the doorway. <gasps> that is commercial. Oh my gosh. So Cheryl Andrews describes a technique used to create identical cattle in which a fertilized egg is divided multiple times in vitro, and then the cells are separated and can be used to create identical offspring, clones. And Peter's like, who's capable of doing such work? And she's like, well, no one would ever admit to doing non-humans, but Honestly, any gynecologist could easily do it. It's not like it's hard. Mm-hmm. So just not supposed to be doing it. Right. Also, she mentions the fact that, like, how many eggs could you get at once? And apparently in cattle, you get 20. And then so later, like, the number 20 is going to come up, too, in addition to seven a lot. I kind of cut all that stuff out because I didn't care. But yeah. also it breaks it breaks the pattern of seven. Yeah. <laughs> and also we saw there were seven eggs. So it seems weird because then they latch on to this 20 thing for a little bit, which is odd. So... Anyway, Frank knocks on a hotel room door. It's number seven. (laughs) Oh. Dennis answers, and Frank tells him the river of blood happened just like he said it would. And he asks how he knew. And Dennis says, I read Exodus. And Frank's like, well, who else knows? And then Dennis thinks he's mocking him, right? Because, like, well, who else would know? Anyone who read Exodus, obviously, kind of, you know. So, And Frank tells him, no, there are others, and there will be more deaths. And then Dennis is like, I don't know of anyone else. And Frank is like, where do you plan to be on May 5th, 2000? Mr. I believe in all this stuff. (laughs) And Dennis is like, Pocatello, Idaho. He's reserved a hotel room. Actually, it's a motel room, but it's supposed to be really nice. So, yeah. So in an office later with Frank and Peter, Dennis tells them that Pocatello, Idaho is 531 miles from the nearest coast. It's 4,448 feet above sea level and is a seismic oasis. And then... Peter tells Frank that, like, well, since I don't believe in telepathy, I had to assume that the girls who killed themselves had prior contact. And then Dennis is like, Peter, I just want to say it's great working with you again. And Peter totally ignores him. I, I love him so much. I, used to, I don't know. I just love him so much. He's just so eager. And he's, like, so knowledgeable about this one thing. And he just really wants to be part of the team. And I don't know. I love him. Yeah. But he's also kind of a crackpot, if you think about it. He is it, a so. crackpot, but I, yeah. I love him anyway. Yeah. So it turns out the girls did not contact each other. However... They did share contact with someone else. And then he pulls up this three-dimensional like thing on the computer, and it shows telephone communications. And they both had a single point of contact with a number. And then hit some buttons, and all these other points of contact are showing up, and they're all surrounding the center point. And he points to the other connections as he's talking. He's like, Missouri, blue-eyed blonde, AWOL. Colorado, blue-eyed blonde, missing two days. California, missing 24 hours. Each one and only child. They're being recalled. And, of course, there are 20 of them, which, Uh again, would not make sense because we're already 
missing like two, so that'd be 22. And so that's why I cut all that out because it didn't make sense. But I'm saying it anyway. So uh, anyway, Frank is like, where? And the screen displays the location. Pocatello, Idaho. Ooh. Yeah. So then we're at the atrium at Pocatello, Idaho. The manager of the atrium says he knows his building. There's no way someone is using it without his knowledge. Frank, Peter, Dennis, and a sizable group of state troopers search the building anyway. As the officers go through each room and call them clear, Dennis seems extremely interested in the architecture and design of the building. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they come to a room where the building manager's key doesn't work. He's confused. He says, someone must have changed the lock without my permission. So they pry open the door. Inside, it's completely dark. Flashlights reveal a spray-painted conjunction symbol on the wall and what looks like a power box. So they're like, hmm, what's inside the box? The manager doesn't know. It shouldn't even be there. Uh Uh-oh. So they inspect it carefully, probably to make sure it's not like a bomb or something or Mm -hmm. some trap is going to spring out. Snakes. Yeah, you know, I mean, you never know. Inside, there's a number of wires that lead to a control switcher. And there are three presets. Standby, active, and line shift with a numerical keypad just beneath it. Beside each of the preset conditions is a red light. The one beside line shift is off. The one besides active is on, and the one beside standby is blinking. Mm. I totally just thought that was a bomb. Honestly, it looked like a bomb to me. Yeah, it we'll kind of did. Yeah, it's not. Because yeah. Peter says it's just a phone switcher, so no one else is worried. But it could be forwarding literally anywhere. Dennis asked the manager who designed the building. The manager can't remember the name, but he remembers the phone number. It's like 555, and Peter and Frank look at each other, and Frank says, 2000? <gasps> then it's night, and they're staked out some distance from a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in Pocatello. And there are several vehicles outside with out-of-state plates. And Frank is watching the house with binoculars. And then a young woman comes out who looks exactly like Lauren slash Carlin. And she's getting something from one of the vehicles. And we see that Myra is waiting for her by the door. And then the woman starts to go back up the stairs to the building. But then she turns and stares directly at Frank. Mm-hmm. And he's like, mm-hmm. And then she goes up the stairs and says something to Myra. And Myra also turns and looks directly towards them. And then they go inside. So they realize they've been made. So they all rush the house and officers burst in and they spread through the house. And we hear sounds of like women and possibly girls like trying to escape like, oh, and they're all over the place. And Frank goes to the basement and he finds dozens of young women and girls. We assume probably like ages of like 10 and 17 and 24 who all look exactly alike. And he tells them that no one's going to harm them. There weren't any three-year-olds. They probably didn't want to get babies because that'd be hard to, you know, wrangle when you're doing a TV mm-hmm. show. So totally. yeah. Meanwhile, Dennis has headed upstairs and has found Iron Lung Man. And Iron Lung Man turns to look at him, and then Dennis kneels before him and places his hands in the Mandela position and lowers his head as if in reverence or in prayer. Oh. It's commercial. <laughs> hmm. So despite Frank's objections, the state officer in charge, fearing a Jonestown-like massacre, places the girls in protective custody and loads them onto an Idaho Department of Corrections bus. 
which is apparently painted all black for stealth. Yeah, I don't know why you would paint your bus all. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so school kids don't get confused and try and get on it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Dennis comes out and says that Iron Lungman wants to talk to him. Dennis told him that Frank understands. Frank says he doesn't want to understand. But Frank enters the room with the Iron Lung Man, and there's an officer in the room standing guard. Frank looks out the window, and he tells Iron Lung Man they're all being loaded up and taken away. And the man looks at Frank, but he doesn't answer. Frank asks the officer if they can have a minute. So the officer leaves. Iron Lung Man tells Frank that Noah was an insane man until the rains came. And the day the flood began... All the people who had jeered showed up. Imagine the chaos, the violence. People who had taunted Noah just hours before, now willing to commit any vile act to secure a seat on his boat. He contemplated that for years and finally realized the people he wanted to see in the next world, people who would care for each other as brother and sister, did not exist. He would have to create them. Mm. When he saw the results how perfect they are to each other, he knew that the next world would be better. And Frank sort of alternates between understanding and quiet outrage. He says the Iron Lung Man's daughters are down there crying and he doesn't care. And the man moans. Frank says that he wanted to play God. And Iron Lung Man says no. He accepts that on May 5th, 2000, the cataclysm will come but not as God's referendum on humanity, merely as part of an eternal order of the cosmos. We cannot stop it, and it's not about us. Once he accepts this, it is his responsibility as a human being to do everything he can to preserve what is good about humanity. Frank asks what he told Lauren and Carlin before they died. He says he told them the truth, that the thousand days had begun and that he was dying and he wouldn't make it with them to the other side. He prays that all his children will be all right. Mm. So then the women and girls finish loading onto the bus, and the driver is watching them, and the last young woman kind of looks at him, and they exchange a smile, and an officer locks the gate inside the bus, and then gets off, and the bus pulls away. Yeah, and the driver of the bus looks like a male version of them. Like, he's blonde, and he looks yes, a lot like spoiled them. it, Tori! Oh, sorry. Oh, my gosh. Oh, spoiler. You see it right here in the scene. Like, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh, shit. I don't see anything. This is a podcast. Okay, well. Not a visual medium. In the show, the minute you see yes. him, you're like, oh, crap, this guy is Yeah, you're like, oh, he's a clone, yeah. So Peter is looking through some books downstairs, and then Frank joins him. And inside, the one that Peter is looking at, there's a newspaper clipping that reads, Local Girl Accepted at Oxford. And then Frank pulls one of the books from the shelf, and this one contains clippings that appear to be from a male clone. And it's all, Local Students Win Oregon State Science Award. And he's flipping through the book, and of course, as he's flipping, like, you know, it's a little kid, and he gets older, because, you know, they're taking place. And one of the later pictures is a graduation photo of a young man that looks exactly like the driver of the bus. Weird weird and then an officer enters and frank is like where's dennis and then he's like i haven't seen that crackpot since the bus left and then frank is like he's gone they're all gone and he shuts the book and hands it to peter and he's like the bus is never going to arrive and we see that the spine of frank's book reads david and peter's reads lauren so he's got books of all the kids he's made 
And so the officer is like, guys, go after that bus, get that bus. And then as they realize what has happened, all the lights go out in the house. Power has been cut. Frank grabs a flashlight and heads upstairs. Meanwhile, on the bus, all the girls turn in unison to face the rear of the bus and get on their hands and knees and start praying. And they're all like, so they're on the ground and leaning on the bus seats, right? And then the camera pans down the aisle towards the rear and Dennis is sitting in the back of the bus. Mm-hmm. And one of the young women looks up at him and extends her left hand and he reaches out and takes it and she smiles at him. So Dennis is on the bus with a whole bunch of clone girls. <laughs> Probably not thinking of it in the way that I think maybe you're <laughs> thinking of it, but yes, he is. I mean, all these clones exist to repopulate the earth. So it's true. In one way or another, he is thinking about it that way. I mean, they don't want his inbred earth, though, man. Mm. I know, because they don't want his broke ass DNA. (laughs) It wasn't specially chosen. I have a theory about that. Okay. Well, we see that the Iron Lung Man is dead, and Frank closes his eyes. Peter tells him the power was intentionally cut and they found the bus abandoned. He also tells Frank that Dennis is still at large. Frank tells him that wherever they all went, Dennis will be with them. He hands Peter a painting from the wall. It's the interior of the atrium. It's interior structure built very similar to that of a ship or perhaps Mm. an ark. Back at the atrium, we see the interior structure, including the fact that the walls have shock absorbers. The Ark, Peter says. Frank says at least they know where they'll all be on May 5th, 2000. Take it out. Put it in your calendar. <laughs> there you go. Just put it in your calendar for three years from now, and we'll, we'll all meet back here and rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Peter says it doesn't sound as crazy when it's not Dennis ranting about it. He asks Frank how the cataclysm is supposed to begin. Frank says he doesn't know, but they all know how it's supposed to end. Then he says he needs to get his daughter something. I mean, it's already started. Isn't that the whole point of like all the. Yeah, I thought so. Like the floods. I mean, I guess the cataclysm itself hasn't begun, but like, yeah. So back at the yellow house, Jordan opens a box. It's a model of the solar system. Then Catherine tells Frank that Jordan was accepted into Green Valley Day School. Frank says, oh, good. Jordan plays with the model and she's turning the sun and moving the planets around in their orbits. And Catherine is like, good. Jordan's now set through the 12th grade. We're home free until 2010. And she picks up Jordan and tells her that she and her daddy think she's the smartest little girl and she's going to grow up to be a smart big girl. And Frank smiles, but he looks kind of pensive. And then he looks down at the model, and all the planets are aligned. <gasps> oh. So all their ducks in a row, but so are the planets. Ooh. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you think the world is going to end in three years, that's not great for your kid. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, who, you know, just let her play in the sandbox for three years, if that's the case, if you really believe it. So Right. Yeah. Although, man, she's getting accepted into a school that's going to take her for the whole 12 years of, like, school. That's some school. Damn, yeah. That sounds like a cult, honestly. <laughs> but, okay. So while the planetary alignment of May 5th, 2000 was an actual event, 
during which the six innermost planets of our solar system aligned, but not seven, the predicted cosmic catastrophe obviously did not happen. <laughs> you know, hey, we would so. probably know yeah. now that it's been 22 years. Yeah, I feel like we yeah. would have noticed. Yeah, as Dr. David R. Williams of NASA Goddard Space Flight Center wrote, on May 5th, 2000, the planets of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn will be more or less positioned in line with the sun. Additionally, the moon will be almost lined up between the Earth and the sun. Although this has led to many dire predictions of global catastrophes, such as melting ice caps, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, etc., there is absolutely no scientific basis for these claims. The distance to the planets is too great for their gravity, magnetic fields, radiation, etc., to have any discernible effect on Earth. In fact, we won't even be able to see this alignment as all the planets will be on the opposite side of the sun from the Earth. So actually, during the May 5th, 2000, the Earth was on the opposite side from all the rest of them. So right. the, the images we show, everybody's in a straight line, like Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth. So, it But we're actually blue. all the way around the other side, so... Yeah. We talked about this during Syzygy. Or like alignments are really just like you're kind of like on the same side of the sun and that kind of stuff. This one actually is a pr like if you look at the chart, it actually is a pretty good alignment. There's like I think it's like three degrees or something. Like it actually is like an alignment, so it is kind of cool. But just thought the way they said it would be so. And then he continues while each planet has a minute and virtually undetectable gravitational pull on the Earth, with the planets on the opposite side of the sun. The force from each body will actually be at its absolute minimum during the alignment. And there is nothing magic about the planets being in a line. The effects do not somehow multiply due to a geometric arrangement. For example, the combined gravitational effect of all the planets together is much less than the effect of the sun or the moon on the Earth, depending on how strictly you want to define alignment. Depending on how strictly you want to define the alignment, the six inner planets are aligned every 50 to 100 years or so, while unusual such alignments have happened in the past without any consequences the planets are simply too far away to have an effect on anything here on the Earth, except our imaginations. Mm -hmm. Although when I was a kid, I was terrified of everything. And I had had a friend who like downloaded Nostradamus predictions and mm -hmm. like printed them out. And I remember reading them and just like lying awake at night being like sure the world well, was Well, was it when like... we talked about Syzygy, wasn't the world supposed to end right before you were born? Yeah, <laughs> like, I think so. Book? I mean, it's just one of those the things. Jupiter but effect. like. Yeah. I mean, I'm a kid with anxiety who vaguely believed in this stuff and was like, oh, my God, the world's going to end. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Anyway, I was so this would have terrified the crap out of me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that said, May 5th, 2000 was Lance Henriksen's 60th birthday. <gasps> Coincidence. That's cool. Yeah. So my theory, I think this is very similar to a theory we recently had during memento mori talking about clones where i think dennis is also one of the clones because dennis and iron Lungman look kind of alike okay yeah and we're assuming that the young men are supposed to be young iron Lungman. i don't know if his daughter myra and then all the other clones because myra obviously is like the older version of the clone girls and I don't know if that's actually supposed to be his actual daughter or if she's just like a female clone of him that I'm not sure. So um, it is, uh, it could be kind of weird if she's not a female clone of him and she thinks she's his daughter. And that's kind of creepy because then like clones of him and clones of his daughter are supposed to get it on to repopulate the earth. Kinda gross. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah. Also, why would you want all the same people with all the same genetic structure to repopulate the Earth? That does not sound like a good plan. No, so, it does not. Yeah. And also, I joke that Moulter could clone Scully and solve the problem, right? And then he would be like the whole Deadpool thing where Deadpool had a bunch of Gwen Stacy clones. And I mentioned that mm -hmm. comic. When Carlin jumps off, well, she doesn't really jump, but when she steps off the dam and falls in the water, she is dressed almost exactly like Gwen Stacy in the comic <gasps> books when the Green Goblin throws her off the Washington Bridge. She is, yeah. I didn't even yeah. realize that. Just her hair is short instead of being long, but she's dressed almost exactly like Gwen Stacy. So, I don't know if that's a coincidence also, but yeah. And then I think we both kind of mentioned earlier, but I mean, given the chance, I'd rather be on a bus with a clone full of Morris than a clone full of... <laughs> yeah, so. I, I think she's way more attractive, but that's just yeah. me. Yeah. Um, I am confused. Like, I don't understand why Carlin and Lauren killed themselves. Yeah, I, that, I here, here's what I think. I think they had to. Otherwise, how does Frank get involved in this? There have to well, be Well, yes. No, I understand that. But like... Or deaths or something, right? But logically, so. from the point of like the cult and its purpose, like there's no reason for them to do that. So I'm just really confused. No. And it sounds like they did it because be. they didn't want to live in a world where their father wouldn't exist, even though like they... I don't know how much they know about their father because they live with these other families and... I don't know. Yeah. I think it was just they needed a contrivance to bring Frank sure. into it. No, and totally. So we needed we needed some deaths. I was and just they confused had, on the Yeah, and they had different theories. Like at one point, Cheryl, they're talking about like, well, why did they kill themselves? Like, do they like fail? And so they don't they, they didn't make the cut. And they're like, they all have the same DNA. How could they not make the cut, right? And then Cheryl's like, Well, if you have the DNA, you don't need the people. So which is true. You could have just like stored the DNA and then made all the clones after the flood and then you'd have a more roomy arc but i don't know but yeah so yeah i just i thought that was kind of weird because like i don't know when the episode starts it's really interesting because it's like well i think maybe she was protesting something but no one knows what she would be protesting and so like I was yeah like, oh cool. they talk about the buddhist monks and then with her doing like yeah. the mandela and stuff like that for the vietnam war so yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It just that part was a little bit odd to me because I was like, once we get the explanation of what the clones are, I'm like, well, now it doesn't make sense that he would like trigger them to like kill themselves. So I don't really know what's going on. Yeah, it sounds like more like it was their decision because their father wasn't going to be in the next world. So they were like, well, I don't want to be there. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, just a little confusing. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think we're not supposed to think about that part and just be like, oh, probably I not, <laughs> but I do. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, here's the things it's questions. really hard to write clone stories that don't have things you're like, why are you doing that? So, it's true. You know, it's true. One way or another. So, it's very yeah. true. So, Tori, mm -hmm. unless you have anything else, what did you think of this episode? Oh, well, I found this one way more entertaining than the last one. Mm hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting. Like the whole time I was like, what's happening? What's going on? Like, I felt like the explanation was a little, mm, meh, okay, fine, sure, whatever. I mean, I guess that we had to get to cataclysm. I mean, I th and... Yeah, I think of this as like Millennium's Eve episode. Okay. Which also, when you think about like Eve is a great episode, like it's fantastic, right? But when you start thinking about it, you're like, wait, why are they, why did they do that? Why is this happening? It's true. So, yeah, yeah but I do but think I of do... this as like that episode. 
I love Brad Dorif. I love his character. Like he's very like <laughs> I just I love that he's kind of annoying and I love like his whole like example, blah blah blah. Example. <laughs> yeah. Like I thought that was great. And I love that he found out about the Millennium Group and just like attached himself as much as possible and then like finally gets talked into leaving and then there's another thing that's relevant to his interest and he's like back again and just be like, I uh-huh. work with them. I don't know. I thought he was great. So he was really fun to watch. But like once we found out like the whole like, oh, this is my arc and I am Noah and I have made all these clones to survive into the next world. I was like, eh, okay, that's fine. I guess that's a fair explanation for what's going on. It's not the most interesting explanation, but sure. It relates to the show, which is all about coming apocalypse. I would say we finally get back to some apocalypse stuff. I remember before the hiatus, I was going back looking through old show notes and I mentioned at one point, like, we've kind of gotten away from the whole apocalypse thing. It's just been like serial killer, serial killer, serial killer. And now at least it is going back to the apocalypse a little bit. So Yeah, it is. So I thought that was good. Um, I definitely like this one a lot more than I liked the previous one. And honestly, the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm going to give this a seven. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I am going to give it an eight. Okay. You so, know, yeah. I might go ahead and bump it to an eight just for Brad Dorif because I think he did a great job and he was okay. really fun. Okay. Is that official? Has that become canon and is now officially an eight? Or are you <laughs> going to think about it? No, let's make it an eight. We'll do it. Okay. Eight. All right. Ooh, double eights. <laughs> oh, no sevens. You could have <laughs> gave it a seven, Tori. <laughs> well, I did it first. So there's your drink. And now <laughs> you can drink some water because it changed to an eight. Hey, eight and eight is 16. Add one and six, seven. Boom! <laughs> there we go. That's the thing about numbers. You can make them mean whatever you want. Yep. It's great. All right. Well, yeah. No, I like this one a lot. Um, so far, I have to say, this Chip Johannesson guy has done pretty good because he previously did Blood Relatives, which was also pretty good. Also yeah. had a few issues, but was a pretty good episode. Um, I gave that one an eight, and you gave it a seven. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like if nothing else, he gets how to write some compelling side characters mm-hmm. who are, you know, and he at least can craft a compelling mystery. Sometimes the solution isn't amazing, but at least like he's asking fun questions and I'm along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. No. And Brad Dorf is really good on this. Yeah. he's very- Yeah. He's great brings a little bit of the humor and also i mentioned that he's a crackpot and crazy person but so was noah until the rain came <laughs> so yeah yeah i want to rewatch is hosted by tori and nick and recorded in collaboration with black cat and orange tuxedo studios episode production design and editing is by lazy and productions our music is dark science by david hillowitz and the truth is what we make of it by the Our bonus X-Files Adjacent feed is where we cover television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files Adjacent. If you like what we're doing, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time, and together we'll try to figure out if if the the truth truth is still out there.
All right. Ba-boom. Okay. Ba-boom, ba-boom. Shake the room. All right. Take a break. Go get a cookie or two. (laughs) And uh, I'll meet you here in a few minutes. Okay. Sounds like a plan.